Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 to 29. And having your Bibles available and open will help you feel engaged with the sermon as it goes along and you follow along in the text. We're covering 1 Samuel 23 this morning, but once again, it's in a psalm of David where I want to begin this morning. It's not a long psalm, but I'd like, if you would, to, to keep your finger there in 1 Samuel 23, but turn to Psalm 54. To the right, several books, a little ways, to the book of Psalms, Psalm 54. Now, since chapter 19, while you're getting there, let me just say, since chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, We've been considering how the events of the chapters in this part of the narrative, these wilderness chapters, David on the run, the anointed one on the run, suffering in preparation for the throne, how the events of these chapters are not only recorded for us in 1 Samuel, but in many cases are the backdrop of several of the Psalms. And it's once again the case this morning. So, it's in the Psalms where I want us to get our starting point. Psalm 54. Are you there now? Look at the heading. Psalm 54. To the choir master with stringed instruments. A mascal of David. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? You see, and there we are. It's 1 Samuel chapter 23. So let me read Psalm 54. O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. <clears throat> For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good, for he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. It is verse 4 of Psalm 54 that I think serves not only as the main point of the psalm, but also the main point of 1 Samuel chapter 23 as I read it. Look there again, verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And I think that the narrative of 1 Samuel 23 is about precisely that, how the Lord was the upholder of David's life. That's what David's learning at this point of his life. And it's a lesson that David has to learn because in chapter 23, it's some of his own people who are turning against him, right? Do you remember 
where David is when we come into chapter 23. It's a little tricky because last week, Josiah preached wonderfully on the, 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 the end of chapter 22, which was all about the horrifying act of Saul against the priests at Nob. And David really wasn't very prominently a part of that narrative. So we have to go back two weeks to when we last were tracing where David was going. And you remember then, if you, if you can look back at chapters 21 and into 22 from two weeks ago, you remember how David had gone from Nob, then to Gath, then to the cave in Adullam, and then to Moab, right? He was trying to get out of Judah. And then it was in verse 5 of chapter 22 that we read, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth, it says, and that's where we now pick up the story again, in Judah, which is David's own area, right? Because David's from Bethlehem. David's the son of Jesse of the tribe of Judah. And here we are in chapter 23, and who is it that will turn against David? Well, it's the inhabitants of two places you've probably never heard of. Kayla and Ziph. And because you've never heard of them, it's easy to miss part of the point of this chapter because it's not spelled out explicitly here. You're just expected to know this, that the city of Kayla and the wilderness around Ziph are in Judah. This is where the Lord wants him. This is where the prophet sent him. And this is where David has to learn that even in his homeland, it's only the Lord who is the upholder of my life. So, 1 Samuel 23 divides into three sections very neatly. There's verses 1 to 14 surrounding the, the incident at Cala with the Philistines. Then there's verses 15 to 18 as Jonathan comes and visits David. And then there's verses 19 to 28, as David is betrayed by those in Ziph. And I think the point is that the Lord upheld David in three different ways in those three sections of our chapter, those three circumstances. And I'll just say it for you now. Firstly, the Lord upheld David in verses 1 to 14 in Kela by giving David guidance, in this case, direct divine guidance. Secondly, the Lord upheld David in verses 15 to 18 near Horish by Jonathan's encouragement. And then thirdly, the Lord upheld David in verses 19 to 28 in the wilderness of Ziph by a clear example of his divine providence. Guidance, his guidance, his encouragement, and his providence. That's how the Lord works to uphold David. That's David saying, it is the Lord who is the upholder of my life.
And similarly, though not identically, I think that's how the Lord works to uphold us too, brothers and sisters. There's a lot for us to think through in response to this chapter. My sermon only sort of hints at some of that. The guidance, the encouragement, and the providence of the Lord sounds like what I need. I don't know about you. Firstly, then, we begin with the Lord upholding David by divine guidance in verses 1 to 14. Now, David's in the forest of Hereth, we found out in chapter 22. We don't know exactly where that is. We just know it's somewhere in Judah. He's there when we read verse 1 of our chapter. Look there at verse 1. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. It's harvest time. Grain's in the barn. The food they need. The Philistines are after it. Kela's a small walled city, archaeologists tell us. It was a small walled city located in the Shephelah, which is the foothills that are between Judah, if you're on the map, between Judah and to the west, Philistia. That means we're in the western part of the territory of Judah. We're in an area that's vulnerable to Philistine incursions, as is happening here. And indeed, David hears they're after the grain. Note here his response. Verse 2, therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Which, now, think about that for a moment, would you? Who does David have with him? Well, those 400 men, remember that from chapter 22 in the cave of Adullam, the 400 men, not perhaps the most war-ready group, you could say, if you recall that from chapter 22. And besides that, David's on the run here, isn't he? David's hiding, attacking the Philistines to defend the city of Kela is not exactly a way to stay hidden. Why is David acting this way? What's driving David at this point in the narrative? It's wonderful because the answer is that what's driving David is the realization that this is what true covenantal kings of Israel do. You see. One scholar writes, David appears here as the man who takes up the task of the king of Israel although he does not yet occupy its throne. And I think even more to the point, David's got some 400 ragtag followers, and Saul's out to kill him with his whole army. And yet David knows what's required of him now. And he seeks the Lord's will. We're watching David mature into his role, aren't we? I mean, where's Saul here? Saul's the king of Israel. Where's Saul? Saul's making no attempt to come to Kayla's aid to battle the Philistines. In fact, when Saul next takes action with his whole army, it's not to fight the Philistines. It's to apprehend David. We're not so surprised that Saul's doing what Saul's doing. What's marvelous is that David's doing the right thing. 
And that's important because if you remember, if you, you know, chapter 21 and 22, we'd seen, or at least I suggested we were seeing, how David had been showing in his beginning of fleeing, he was showing a fair amount of self-interest back in chapter 21, I thought, when he went to Nob and used the priests there and it had that horrifying result that Josiah talked about last week. And then he went to Gath in Philistia, of all places, right? Acted like a madman to deceive, to escape. And, and as I read those texts, I didn't read them very positively regarding David. But then as we moved into chapter 22, we saw how there seemed to be a shift in David's heart in the cave of Adullam and how he started there to understand what the Lord was doing and to show concern for others who were gathering to him in chapter 22. And, and now here that kind of concern for others is clearly present. I mean, you can't, we forget this because we only think of David as the king. David's not the king yet. David's an outlaw right now. David has no official responsibility for Kayla, is my point. But still, he chooses to deliver it from the Philistines, seeking the Lord's will, which is exactly what the king should do. So he inquires of the Lord, and we'll find out more about how he inquired of the Lord here in a minute, I think. But the end of verse 2, the Lord gives the response, and the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Gala. Well, his men are not so sure about this. <laughs> Verse 3, they say, Behold, David, we're afraid here in Judah, just trying to dodge Saul. How much more then if we go to Kayla against the armies of the Philistines? You hear them? These are not war-trained soldiers. So David asks direction from Yahweh again. And indeed, there is no mistake. Verse 4, the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Watch how often the language of the hand is played through this chapter. Whose hand is the strongest as we move through chapter 23? Track it. We'll comment on that towards the end. I will give the Philistines into your hand. It's as clear as can be. And so they do go in faith and they decisively defeat the Philistines. And the end of verse 5 says, so David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Then we get a little narrative pause in verse 6 where I think the narrator is filling in for us how it was that David had been able to seek this kind of direct divine guidance regarding what to do. Verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, remember this from last week, the one who got out of Nob alive? Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah. He had come down, Abiathar had, with an ephod in his hand. And the wording in the middle there is a little uncertain. You hear how it even reads awkwardly in the English. But I think the meaning is that Abiathar came and was then with David when they, David then went down to Keilah. That, in other words, David had met up with Abiathar, who had somehow found him, and David 
had had access to the ephod that Abiathar had brought in making the inquiries that he did in verses 1 to 4 of our chapter, as well as the ones that are to come. And I, I mean, pause again. You remember what this ephod is? We talked about it weeks ago in an earlier part of Samuel. The ephod is just a priestly garment, but in this case it's referring to the one specific high priestly garment to refer to that, the, to reference there, the breastplate of the high priest that contained what are called the urim and the thummim, if you were here a few weeks ago, that were technically attached to the high priest's ephod. You can read all about that in Exodus chapter 28, verses 4 to 14, but this is coming from Nob, where the priests had gone as, a, as the, 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 the spiritual center of Israel had moved to Nob after Shiloh was destroyed. So the high priest's ephod gets to David. Which is ironically wonderful in that in all of Saul's evil actions in Nob, what was the end result? The ephod goes to David. Surely not what Saul intended. The Urim and the Thummim that I'm talking of that are part of this ephod are in the Old Testament the divinely ordained means at that time for receiving divine revelation. They were placed in the custody of the high priest. It's not like everybody in Israel had a set of these. There's one. And it's with the high priest. And it comes to David. We don't even know what they were exactly. But Abiathar had fled with them as part of the ephod that he was carrying in his hand. And David knows that he's the one to make use of it. You see. What's the point? The point is that it's Yahweh's guidance through this ephod that Abiathar brings out of the horrors of chapter 22. It's through Yahweh's guidance that the people of Kela are saved. And through Yahweh's guidance that David and his men would be saved too. Because everything seems right in Kela, right? David had listened to the Lord. Kela was saved. And then things start going wrong. Or it seems like they do. Saul finds out where David is. Saul hears about what has happened. Of course he does. And he has his own interpretation of events, doesn't he? Verse 7, and Saul said. I mean, you, just, you, you have to appreciate the narrative skill at this, at this stage. I mean, the irony here. Verse 7, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. I mean, come on. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. I mean, how deluded is Saul at this stage? So he summons, Saul does, all the people to war. I mean, this is not a small band. He summons all the people to war. To do what? Not to defend Kela and attack the Philistines. No, to besiege David and his men, verse 8 says. They're in the city. Saul's going to come. But David, turns out, also knew Saul's plot. I mean, somehow David seems to have this network of great informants <laughs> all who, who bring him exactly the news what, that he needs to know. He also has access to the Lord in this, in this season, which Saul doesn't. And what Saul doesn't know is that David has access to Abiathar. So what does David do? He says in verse 9, bring the ephod. And David makes this moving plea, and he asks the Lord these two specific questions. The Lord doesn't even answer them both at first. He just answers the second one. 
He says, Saul will come down to you. And what does David want to know? He wants to know if the men of Calah will surrender him into Saul's hand. And we're shocked a bit when we read that the Lord says, they will surrender you, David. He just saved them. This is what would happen if David were to stay in Calah. So David doesn't. Verse 13, then David and his men who were about 600, which if you're reading really carefully, you know means that David has picked up another 200, right? He had 400, now it's 600, maybe some from Calah itself. They arose and departed, and when Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, remember that escaped language, it comes up again at the end of the chapter. David had escaped from Calah through the guidance of the Lord. Saul gave up the expedition. And then verse 14 ends this first section. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, it says, in the hill country of the wilderness of Zip. He moved. We'll get there. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. The Lord upheld David through divine guidance. Now, there's all kinds of intriguing things for us in this section that we could ask about, and I don't have answers to all the questions that could come out of this section of the chapter. I just want to make two brief comments in this part. Here's my comment number one. Note how when David followed the Lord's guidance to go and fight in Keilah, it ended up putting him in significant danger. Did you hear that? Saul's after him there with his whole army. David saves Calah only to be under threat again from Saul. Did that mean that David had misunderstood what he was supposed to do? No. It means that he then had to follow the Lord's guidance in this new challenge as well. I mean, look at Sometimes we follow the Lord into a situation that seems right. I mean, probably you're not battling Philistines, but into a situation that seems right, only to end up facing other challenges, other threats. Might seem like you're worse off than you were before you'd followed the Lord into whatever situation you find yourselves. That doesn't mean that we did the wrong thing in the first place, does it? I think that's a very important thing to see. The Lord led him in, the Lord will lead him out. And then comment number two that I'll make, because I think you very well might be thinking, well, I mean, this is all very nice and all, but I don't get that kind of precise, direct guidance from the Lord that David did. No Urim and Thummim to consult in my world. To which... All I can say is, I don't get that kind of direct guidance either. <laughs> and neither did all the rest of the people of Israel. I mean, the Urim and Thunim were not available to just anybody to walk up to the priest and, and use. The Lord's guidance will look different in different situations. And I, I frankly, I quite like what one commentator says, so let me read it. One commentator very honestly writes, I'm not the chosen king. 
It does my ego no damage to concede that David's function in salvation history is far more crucial than mine. The fortunes of the kingdom of Yahweh in this world rest far more on David's preservation than on mine. What was essential for Yahweh's elect king to have, he received. For me, it is not so essential. But, in principle, there is no difference between this elect king and myself. In what context was Yahweh's guidance given? Was it not in access to God through the appointed priest? And is that not the privilege I enjoy? Through a much greater high priest than Abiathar? What, after all, does Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 mean? Since then we have a great high priest. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I never considered that phrase of Hebrews 4, verse 16 before. <clears throat> to find grace to help in time of need. The commentator says, knowing whether Saul will come down to Kayla can't be any better than that. See, the Lord guides his servants according to their needs. David's need won't be yours, but your high priest will help in your time of need. Now, there's a lot more we could say on the subject of divine guidance in our lives. I know that. But we move then now, secondly, to the Lord upholding David here through encouragement in verses 15 to 18. And I make the observation that the encouragement that David receives is from the Lord because contextually, verse 14 makes clear that Saul was seeking David, but Saul can't find David because God didn't give David into Saul's hand. So, in verse 16, when you read, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish, well, then by whose will do we think it is that Jonathan can locate and make it to David? It's the Lord's will, of course. No one finds David unless the Lord wants them to find David. The Lord, then, I'm arguing, is the one upholding David through encouragement, though, of course, it's Jonathan who speaks it. And it's a wonderful scene, I think. It's evidently just a brief encounter. It's the only encounter between David and Jonathan we get after they had parted tearfully, sorrowfully, remember back in chapter 20. It comes just at the right moment. David's in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. This is not a very luxurious place to be. We don't know where Horish is exactly, but Ziph was a town about 10 miles southeast of Kela. If I had a map, I'd put it up here. To the southeast of Kela. We're now in the eastern part of the hill country of Judah. We're adjacent to the wilderness area that leads down toward the Dead Sea. And this is not the most lush part of Israel. 
And David's there, and presumably Jonathan had heard about what had happened at Kayla. And the text doesn't say how Jonathan knew where to find David. The text doesn't say what risks Jonathan ran to get to him, which I assure you they were. It only says what it says in verse 16. Jonathan showed up at just the moment David needed. And verse 16 says, Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. It's a beautiful phrase, and I I think resonant for us as we think about the way the Lord might use us in the lives of others, followers of Christ. He strengthened his hand in God. There's that hand language again, right? As one commentator summarizes it, quote, Jonathan put David's hand, as it were, into God's hand. Isn't that lovely? How did he do it? How did he strengthen David in God? Well, he did it by saying what he says in verse 17. Look there. Do not fear. Those those words, those are the beautiful words of God's messengers that come in situations where fear is what makes all kinds of earthly sense, right? I mean, how many times in the Bible do you get those exact words in moments of crisis? Do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Which is not Jonathan claiming equality with David. If David's on the throne, if you're next to the throne, it means you're not on it. It means you'd be second to David. You'd be subordinate to David. You'd be supporting David in his role as king. That's what Jonathan says he is ready to be. Saul, my father, also knows this, he says. All of which is to say that what does Jonathan do? He reaffirms God's promise to David. Right? That's what he does. He puts into words... What has not yet been explicitly stated for us in the narrative of 1 Samuel, but has clearly been assumed in the previous conversations between Jonathan and David. And this is a very simple observation that I will make here, but I'm going to make it anyway. That the strengthening, the encouragement that Jonathan brings is in words. Right? Now, I'm not... I'm not denying that, of course, Jonathan's very presence would have been comforting to David to see his friend. But what Jonathan brings at this critical juncture, he's not with David very long. He brings the abiding encouragement of God's sure word to him. And brothers and sisters, here's something to remember, I think. We best encourage, we best strengthen one another's hand in God by reminding one another of the promises of God. I mean, that's like all of pastoral care in one sentence right there. (laughs) It's all I do. If you come, if I'm with you and, and I wish to strengthen you in God, what do I do? I speak the promises of God to you. That's what we do for one another. Encouragement from God for the people of God comes from the word of God. I'm not at all diminishing the importance of lots of kind of caring for one another. 
I am simply saying that this solid encouragement relies on and always points to the faithfulness of God. It doesn't seem like it was a very long visit, but what it must have meant to David. I mean, verse 18, and the, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. They do this every time they're together. <laughs> And David remained at Horus, and Jonathan went home. That is the last time they'll see each other. But the timing's just right. I mean, we didn't discuss it, but just imagine the willingness of those, those folks in Kayla who David had just saved, and then David finds out that they were willing to hand him over to Saul. That had to have stung David, don't you think? I mean, what, what's running through David's heart and mind in reaction to hearing that these people of Judah that he just saved would turn him over to Saul? Well, what ran through Jesus' mind when he knew what his disciples would do, I wonder? I mean, no doubt, I want to be gracious in a way. The, the inhabitants of Cala knew what Saul had done in Nob. They knew what it meant for them for assisting David if they didn't react differently. And, and it does say in verse 10 that Saul was intending to destroy the city on David's account. It's very explicit what's going on there. As Josiah referenced last week, it's because of the Lord's anointed, other people are suffering. I mean, this is what's going to happen. We get it. They're afraid of Saul. And in their fear, they decide that they would give David up. we might parenthetically be able to relate to that. Unless we've never done that with our anointed Christ, right? Do we ever deny our identification with Christ out of fear for what we perceive to be a threat to our well-being? Right? There's Peter at the charcoal fire. The night of Jesus' execution, what's he afraid of? Anyway, the point is, sorry for the rabbit trail. The point is, here's David on the heels of this disillusionment from the, the folks at Cala. And we know what's coming next. It's the treachery from the Ziphites, right? I mean, the narrative doesn't answer this question, but maybe we're, we want to kind of ask it. What if, the, what if Jonathan hadn't come right at that juncture? Would David have been able to stay strong through what's about to happen? Well, I don't know, but the point is Jonathan did come. The Lord upholds David through encouragement just when he needed it. Not only to recover from what had just happened, but now his fortification to endure what's coming next. Encouragement comes to David at just the right moment. I know if I went around this room, some of you could tell me stories of times when the encouragement came to you at just the right moment. We can be those who encourage as the Lord uses us in that way in others' lives. Which finally, thirdly, then brings us to how the Lord upholds David in verses 19 to 29 through divine providence. And I know it's not fair to have a favorite of the three of these things. That's not the way we should think of it, but this is my favorite part. 
the providence in verses 19 to 29. And what's so interesting to me in this part of the Samuel narrative is that there's no reference to God at all in these verses, right? Except the ironic reference in the mouth of Saul, which we just cringe at, when he says to the Ziphites in verse 21, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. I mean, the capacity for self-pity that Saul has is unbelievable. And he totally distorts what the Lord is doing. But other than that, the Lord's not mentioned in this section. The Ziphites come to Saul. They promise to show him where David is hiding. We don't know why. It's how it all starts in verse 19. Look there. Then the Ziphites, which just means some Ziphites. It's not like every last one of them came. They went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? I mean, they're pretty specific. They'll surrender David right into Saul's hands. And you get the citizens of Kela wanting to stay out of trouble with Saul, but this is something on another level. The Ziphites initiate it. They're depicted here as willfully wicked people who are real partisans for Saul. And you remember in Psalm 54 that we read at the beginning, verse 3, how according to David, these Ziphites are, quote, ruthless men who seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. That's David's estimation of them. Which is maybe why Saul kind of liked him. So he evidently likes what he sees in them. Go make yet more sure, he said to them in verse 22. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. He's talking about David, right? His failure to reach David in the past doesn't seem to have deterred Saul at all. Then I will go with you, he says midway through verse 23. <laughs> And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. I mean, they, he'd failed utterly in finding David at all. But now he says, I'll find him among all the thousands. Because he has help. And the Ziphites go ahead. And we find out that David and his men had moved now about three miles south of the town of Ziph itself to the wilderness around Maon which is exactly where the Ziphites had said he was. They're in southern Judah, now west of the Dead Sea. And then the narrative moves at a real clip. And I know that I didn't say this in the first service, but, you know, we in our, we in our modern day, we're just used to, like, the thriller novel kind of thing. We love this stuff, but we just think that's the way people write. This is not how literature was written in the ancient Near East. This is... Amazing narrative work that's happening here in 1 Samuel. The narrative moves quickly. The chase is on, verse 25, and Saul and his men went to seek him. Precisely what Saul had said he would do. And David was told. There's his informants again. So he went down to the rock. We don't know, some kind of stronghold. And lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, we don't know how, somehow he heard that. He pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And then it's tantalizingly brief. Verse 26. 
Saul went on one side of the mountain. This is the rock that David had gone to. And, and probably the way the language works here, we're meant to see that Saul's troops are executing a pincer movement here, right? So from one side of the mountain, they're moving in both directions towards David, who's on the other side. And David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. He's scrambling to get away before this pincer snapped shut on him and in a moment more they'd have him as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them and if you have any narrative sensitivity at all you're sort of internally closing your eyes right holding your breath you're ready for the end when at that very moment you read in verse 27 a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. Who would believe it? Who would believe it? So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Saul and his men were closing in on David. But a messenger came. Now, you could talk about the fact that Saul's pursuing David when he should have been defending Israel against the Philistines, and so the Philistines take advantage of that militarily, and it's just all coincidence that it happens right at that moment. I mean, you could say that, but then I don't think you're a very good reader of the text. I think any reader who's been following this story knows intuitively that that wasn't how it happened. Or at least, that's not the whole story. This is the Lord upholding David again. But this time, God's deliverance is manifested in this particularly striking example of the working of divine providence. Here's a definition of providence from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Maybe you read that at bedtime. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, God's works of providence are defined as, quote, his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. I love the powerful part of that. His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And you're meant to marvel. You're meant to marvel and you're meant maybe even to be a bit amused both at Yahweh's timing right at the end and at the humorous irony of the fact that it's the Philistines who saved David. That even the Philistines can be pressed into the Lord's service to save his king. Of course they can. Verse 28, so Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Finally. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. Remember that same escape language in the first part of the chapter. The Lord's in this. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi, which is where he is next week when we come to 
chapter 24. David got it right in Psalm 54, verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. That's where we started. That's where I'm concluding. We saw how here in verse 15 of our chapter, it said that David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, but it was Jonathan who appeared to say to David, do not fear. Because in the final analysis, David is in the Lord's hands, right? I mean, you, you saw some, I didn't point them all out, but how often that the word hand is used all through this chapter, whose hands ultimately are the strong ones? It's the Lord's hands. David is in the Lord's hands. Brothers and sisters, you are too. The Lord is the one protecting and sustaining David. It's the Lord's hands that will prevail. How? Through guidance, through encouragement, through providence. Now, you and I are not the anointed kings of Israel. I get that. This is not always going to look identical to David's situation. But it's the same Lord who's at work to accomplish his purposes in David's life. Hear that very carefully. To accomplish his purposes in David's life, who continues to work in the lives of his people down through the centuries to accomplish his purposes in your life. The purposes are not the same. You're not going to be the covenantal king of Israel. But the Lord has his purposes for your life. And through guidance and encouragement and providence, he will uphold you for them. He sustains those that are his today, even as he did in the time of David and Saul. And let's be clear, Saul's not gone for good. David's distress is not over. Final relief has not arrived. But surely Paul had it right when in Romans 8, verse 28, he famously said, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So that I think in the midst of our own lives, we can say with David, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.